It's an amazing thing. Here we are in week eight of the Old Testament, and you're still here. <laughs> what Mark Craig say? That's good. That's good. <laughs> uh, we are having some fun with this. So uh, some of you have kept kept saying we like charts and we like maps. Okay, so just going to remind ourselves real quickly, uh, kind of where we are, because we're about to go off the end of the map here in just a little bit. Uh, this timeline was just sort of a basic story of the Old Testament narrative as, as, it, as we find there. Uh, we began with the prehistory, Genesis 1 through 11, which is kind of the period prior to everything prior to Abraham. And then we had the patriarchal period, and that those two together collectively uh, finish out the book of Genesis and bring us down to the Exodus story. And then Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy tell the story of the Exodus event, the giving of the law. Uh, we skip 400 years. Uh, we have one verse in the Old Testament, basically. Uh, the Israelites multiply and a new Pharaoh arises. We talked about the Hyksos, some of the historical stuff with that. Um, then we have the settlement and conquest. Uh, have the United Kingdom under David, under Solomon. The kingdom splits. Uh, they exist side by side for a couple hundred years. We have um, then the northern kingdom is destroyed by Syria. You've got Judah alone. And then last week, we kind of got to, uh, to the end of the story of Judah, uh, 597, when the Babylonians come for the first time, 586, when they come for the second time and, and literally destroy everything. The first time, it's just hauling away the king and the king's primary uh, leaders. And then uh, we're going to be talking in a uh, couple weeks, or well, sorry, today, with the exile. Uh, then the, re the restoration, uh, which is kind of where the Old Testament narrative stops we won't stop there but the narrative stops there so last week we got up to that horrendous event of where judah rebels against this new empire thinking it, it can get, get a better deal with egypt and it turns out egypt uh, was not the one to play the card with uh, they are destroyed taken into exile and so we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at that period called the Babylonian exile. Um, it's in sort of an indetermined period. It kind of depends. When did you go into exile and when did you come back? Were you taken in 597 with the first group or were you taken in 586 with the second group or were you were in that little group at the end in 582? Did you come back with, with uh, a Zechariah? I mean, uh, with a... The first group, uh, Belshazzar, or the second group, or 100 years later with Ezra, or the year period after that with Nehemiah. So uh, traditionally, the book of uh, Jeremiah says the exile is 70 years, and that's just kind of an average. Uh, basically, pretty much most of the people who went into exile, it would be their descendants would come back. Um, the exile we want to spend two weeks on before we then move on to the, the Greek and the Roman period and the Persian period, primarily because uh, the exile, although it's short period of time, is immensely important for shaping and determining what will follow. Um, you'll find this statement in textbooks. The exile is arguably the single most important and significant event in the life of Israel. Now, you would think ordinarily that would be the exodus. Well, that would be true for the nation of Israel up to the exile. But for after the exile forward, it is the exile itself that is the determining event. Uh, it becomes a pressure cooker. It, it's a crucible of change. 
every aspect of the faith of Israel is transformed. Their self-identity, the way they understand God, the way they worship God, the way they view the future. We'll find all kinds of new beliefs emerging and, and some of the traditional beliefs fading away. Uh, we move literally from the faith of Israel to this new faith that's starting to emerge called Judaism. And this is known in, in textbooks sometimes as, as early Judaism. It's after the second temple is destroyed in the first century that we get the full-blown rabbinic Judaism that we know today. But the roots are back here in this period. Uh, this experience fundamentally shifts everything. And so we want to take a couple of weeks to sort of broad stroke it before we move on. And then we're going to come back and spend the last four weeks in this series just talking about the changes and the differences and <coughs> what comes out of this. It may surprise you, you may already know this, that there is not, in fact, a history of the exile in the Bible. Uh, the Bible is actually silent. It skips it, uh, which I did not realize until not too long ago. You've got two major histories in the Old Testament. You've got the Deuteronomic history, which includes the book of Deuteronomy, then Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. It's a consistent, cohesive narrative with a particular theological view. You've also got the Chronicler, 1 and 2 Chronicles, People used to say Ezra and Nehemiah, but that's really not part of the chronicle history, although there's some similarities. So what's interesting is both the histories end with the destruction. That's where their story stops. They don't go beyond that. Um, the story ends where the story of the nation of Israel ends. It ends in the ashes of 586. You can literally say the nation of Israel comes to an end. It does not come back. It is gone. What follows will be different. Uh, the historical narrative will resume after the exile. We're very fortunate to have two books, although they're, they're somewhat confusing to read. These are the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we will be looking at those uh, particularly next week. However, even though there's not a historical narrative of the exile, we are actually blessed with a rich amount of material from the exile. There's just not a historical book that says the exile. But it turns out that all through the Old Testament, we have sources from the exile. We have eyewitnesses, multiple eyewitnesses. We have many books that contain material like this. Uh, we have it both for the, the experience in Babylon. We have multiple authors writing from Babylon about what that experience was like for the people who were taken into exile. And we have multiple authors left back in Jerusalem, in Judea, who share with us what that experience is like. So one of the two things you want to do this morning is just to look at that material so we get a kind of a feel. I mean, you can probably guess pretty easily what that would have been like, but it's very powerful to hear the eyewitnesses. One of the places we see this material on both sides is the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a very rich uh, kind of compilation of material from many centuries, from many authors, from many uh, issues, and we have actually some Psalms that are written by people in Babylon, uh, one of them we are very familiar with, and we have some psalms that are written by the people who were left back there. So the one you probably know is Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon. Now, even though we know this, sometimes we, don't, we, we, it's, we may not necessarily remember the historical context, but this is going to be from the perspective of that group, probably the group in 597, who was taken first over there. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept. And there's no surprise here. We know why they're weeping. When we remembered Zion, 
Zion, remember, is a hill in Jerusalem. It's the hill upon which the temple was built, and then the term Zion came to symbolize the hill, the temple, Jerusalem, the place where God dwells. On the willows there, we hung up our harps. Uh, you may know from the Psalms that, that harps or lyres are one of the ways that, that the people worshipped. As a matter of fact, a lot of the Psalms will say you're to sing this song to the tune of. We have no idea what the tune is because there's no music written, but there was a tune to it. So they hung up their harps. Our captors ask of us songs and our tormentors ask for mirth. So a form of torture for the writer of this psalm is to ask you to sing the Lord's song when you know that the temple is gone and their nation is gone and, and everything you've known is gone. Okay, sing us one of your little happy songs about what that was like back home. Um, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That is probably one of the most powerful statements of pain there is in the Old Testament. It is also one of those places where you can see the genesis of the future because then it becomes a question. Well, how do we sing the Lord's song in a new land? And from that, you're going to begin to get creativity. And from that, new forms of worship, the synagogue, the Torah, the way that we worship today will be coming. We'll talk about that later. We also are lucky to have discovered archaeologically an account of King Nebuchadnezzar II about what he did with these exiles. He doesn't specifically mention uh, Israel or Judah, but he mentions what he did in general. The whole of the races, the people from far places whom Marduk, my king, delivered to me. Now, as the Babylonian Empire grew very, very rapidly in all directions, but particularly west, all the way into Egypt, they took out a lot of nations. So he's, he's saying, this is, you know, I took a lot of people in, a lot of countries, 40, 50 countries. So what did I do with them? <coughs> I put them to work on building at the Menanki. Let's say that fast real time. Impose on them the brick basket. Now, does the brick basket bring anything to mind to you? Okay. It brings the Exodus story, what happens in Egypt. Now, Edamanonki is the massive ziggurat dedicated to the god Marduk that is now outside what we would call Baghdad. Uh, it was the largest ziggurat ever made. It is probably... <laughs> The, the structure that's behind the Tower of Babel story. And it is the one, if you've seen uh, pictures of our soldiers in Iraq who are going up and down the staircase of a big ziggurat, this is the one. It's been partially reconstructed over there. It was the, at that point, in terms of this part of the world, the largest structure that had ever been built in terms of height, in terms of what these people knew. Now, the prophet Ezekiel lets us know that he was called by God to be a prophet not in Israel, but in Babylon. Now, that's significant. Because if you think that God is the God of Israel, and you're a thousand miles away from Israel, and yet God can still call you to be a prophet, what does that say about God? It says a lot about God. That God is not just the God of Israel. And so after the exile, we're going to get this new language you've never heard before, with a language that will fade away is God is the God of Israel. The language that will emerge after the exile is that God is Lord of heaven and earth. Do you hear the difference? Okay. Part of it is here. Ezekiel 1, 1 through 2. In the 30th year, as I was among the exiles of the river Kabar, Kabar 
Remember the Basque? I'm not Basque. The uh, far northern Iraq, the group Kurds. This is up in Kurdistan. Okay, on the river there. And by the way, the others are down. So the the exiles didn't go to one place. They were taken to several places. About the river Kebar, the heavens are opened. I saw visions of God. It was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim is taken in 597. So this would be the year probably 592. He lets us know that God calls him to be a prophet, 592, seven years after he went into exile. Ezekiel will be active for the next 22 years, where? In Babylon. So if you're reading the book of Ezekiel, the entire book of Ezekiel is written in Babylon. And it narrates down to the year 520. Matter of fact, he has the story when his wife dies. All that we know that happened in 570 uh, is that his, uh, he stops having, vi he's a visionary. He stops having visions. He didn't die, uh, but that's just where the story stops as far as we know it. 16 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. So we have an eyewitness prophet writing from the perspective of Babylon for the first 16 years after the temple is destroyed or, or 22 years from the time he goes into that. We also have accounts of what it was like for the vast majority of Israelites who remained in Judah. We have several really good sources. Again, we have some Psalms. If you look at Psalm 79, this is written by someone who did not, was not taken, but this is probably an elite who was not taken. He can read, can write. God, the nations have come into your inheritance. What would your inheritance be? Israel, the nation. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the air for food. Striking visual. The flesh of your faithful to the wild animals of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem. And there was no one to bury them. Probably not because there's no one who physically can do it. But in the ancient world, one of the ways you humiliated people is you did not allow them to bury their dead. They were just allowed to rot out there. That sends a message. We have become the taunt of our neighbors mocked and derided by those around us. Get the feeling for that? Don't ever read Lamentations if you're depressed, okay? <laughs> Six chapters, and it's, it's the most depressing thing in the Bible. It's written by someone or some people who went through this experience, and they remain in Israel at this time. They're left in the ruins. I'm just, just a little sampling of it. We don't want to delve too deeply. It's just too depressing. How lonely sets the city that once was full of people. She that was a princess among the provinces has become a vassal. Uh, the kingdom of David, uh, particularly right before the destruction when Josiah was king, had been ascended again and it had controlled many of the surviving surrounding nations and now they, they control her. Judah has gone into exile with suffering and hard servitude. A lot of debate over were they slaves or were they kind of free? There's some language both in from the Babylonian king and from places like this that there was hard servitude, and yet there's some other places that indicates at least the king and his court were treated very well. She now lives among the nations. The roads to Zion, to Zion mourn, for no one comes to the festivals. All her gates are desolate. Her foes have become her masters. Her enemies prosper. Her children 
have gone away, captives before the foe. So you get from those two sources kind of the feel. Now, remember, Ezekiel was carried away in 597 from Israel into Babylon. He's going to spend the rest of his life there. He's called there. The other prophet of the period is Jeremiah. Jeremiah was not taken, probably because Jeremiah repeatedly said to the king, do not rebel against Babylon. It is a bad idea. Now, this would probably have been perceived by the Babylonians to be what? Pro-Babylonian. So they're not going to haul him away, you know. He continues to be active in Jerusalem through the first invasion, the second invasion, and down to the assassination of Jedediah in 582 uh, for at least five years after the temple is destroyed. He gives us several remarkable insights. One is that even after the temple was destroyed, people, the people who were left up in Galilee and Samaria and around Judea, it, it looks like that the, the city of Jerusalem itself probably was deserted, but the surrounding countryside was not. That people continued to come to the temple. Now, the temple's destroyed and there are no priests. Can they do sacrifice? No. Can you still make an offering? Yes, you can. And he gives us an, uh, uh, an insight in this. Some of those who remain would walk for many miles in, in groups, and they would bring offerings, and they would bring it to God at the temple, Jeremiah 41. By the way, chapters 40 and 41, if you want to read some material here, those two chapters deal with this period. On the day after the murder of Jedaliah, now Jedaliah is the man appointed by Babylon to be the governor on their behalf. He's probably a Babylonian official. And he's going to be assassinated <coughs> by a group of Jews, including some descendants of, of King David. Um, we'll be talking about that more before anybody knew about this. So their coming there is not because they've heard of the assassination. It just happened to be a coincidence. Eighty men arrived from Shechem and Shiloh and Samaria. You know where all those are, right? All those are up north. That's the middle part, south of Galilee, north of Judea. It's, it's the, the, hill, the, the hill area up there. Uh, that we would uh, call Samaria today. With their beards shaved, their clothes torn, their bodies gnashed. What are they doing? They're in mourning and they're in, in repentance. Bringing grain offerings and incense to present to the temple of the Lord. Now the temple's been destroyed, but there's at least enough there. They may have created an altar or some altar may be left. It's Jeremiah who also gives us in the same section a wonderful insight that is critical for understanding what happens later. One of the big issues in, in, in this uh, period is you got a group of exiles that go into exile, they come back, and the first thing that happens when they get back is they hate everybody that's there. Remember? Put away your wives. Put away your children. What's that about? Where did that come from? We know where it comes from. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that because that shapes all the way down to Jesus, all the way down to Paul, all the way down to the book of Acts, all the way to the New Testament. A lot of what's going on there. Uh, he lets us know that not all of the elites were taken. We found out later that some of the elites did not think rebelling against Babylon was, was a good idea. Matter of fact, they got out of Dodge or Jerusalem before the Babylonians arrived. So they're still there. And they can read and write and they're administrators. Now, if you're the Babylonian Empire, who are these people? They're valuable resources. And by the way, they didn't rebel against you. We also know there are some others. Anyway, there's some that begin to work with the Babylonians. So Jeremiah 40, verse 9. Do not be afraid. This is the words of Jeremiah, the words of God through the prophet Jeremiah. 
to these people. Do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Stay in the land. Serve the king of Babylon, and it shall go well with you. And by the way, we'll look at this later. Remember all that property owned by the people that were taken away? It's free. It's available. And you can move right in. Do you think there may be the seeds of some tension here for the future? Okay, yeah. Jeremiah tells us that, it's this, that this led to violent clashes between those who supported Babylon. And apparently there are also some elites who were not taken into Babylon who are anti-Babylonian. And we're told flat out, some of King David's family, remember the king was hauled away? And then 10 years later, the other king was hauled away, both of the house of David. Well, there's some more members of the house of David that remain in Babylon, remain in Judea, and they're among the people who assassinate the Babylonian governor, Jedediah, uh, which gives you an interesting insight into what's going on. Um, so even though there's no history, do we have a lot of material to work with? Absolutely. It's very, very, very rich. And we'll be going back to mind this. Now, there's a lot of issues that arise out of the exile influence of the faith, and we're going to take many weeks to work through that. We want to talk about the formation of Scripture. We want to talk about the origin of the synagogue. We want to talk about how do we get from worship based on sacrifice to worship based on reading and interpreting scripture. We want to know when did life after death belief can come in. It's not there before. It's thereafter. There's no belief in a Messiah part of the exile. You don't need a Messiah. Messiah means anointed means king. If you got the king on the throne, do you need to believe in a Messiah? You've already got the Messiah. But if you don't have a king, what do you need? You need a Messiah. And the list goes on and on. Where did all this business about circumcision and, and kosher laws and observing Sabbath, why does this all of a sudden become increasingly important? Well, all of this is going on behind the scenes. But this week and next week, before we then move on to the Persian, Greek, and Roman period uh, in our historical sort of survey, there's two issues that we need to look at because these issues are critical for everything that follows. Uh, we'll look at one today, and we'll look at one next week, and then we'll, we'll move on to the Persian period. Today we want to uh, examine... Israel, and it's clear from multiple, multiple scriptures, after the destruction, and as they're setting in, 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 in Babylon, and as they're setting back in Jerusalem among the ruins, uh, and you get those things like, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? One of the questions that's being asked is, why? We're God's chosen people. Why did God allow this to happen? How did it happen? And what does it mean? There's a lot of theological self-exploration as the people of God as to what's going on. And what, what does all this mean? What's going to happen is we're going to find that even many of the most cherished beliefs of this people are called into question. So much so that the, the theology that dominated Israel, just before the exile, is rejected. The predominant way of understanding God, the predominant way of understanding themselves as God's people, and, the and it's going to be replaced by something new. And that's what we want to look at today. We have new ways of thinking, one of which is known as the Deuteronomic theology. Now, it gets its name because this language appears in the book of Deuteronomy, and you find it throughout what's called the Deuteronomic history. So you find the same kind of thinking in Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings on down. 
you also find this thinking first somewhere else. The prophets. Particularly the prophet Jeremiah. So what it looks like is that the, the ultimate roots of this new theology arise from prophecy. The prophetic understanding of the relationship between God and Israel. Particularly the prophet Jeremiah. So we'll be, we'll be mining Jeremiah a lot here. This new theology becomes predominant. After uh, the destruction, when they come back from the exile, all the way down to the first century A.D. and the time of Jesus, if you would add, there's, there's many different theological views kicking around. If you're going to ask, what is the predominant theological understanding that's out there? What's the one that dominates the Dead Sea Scrolls? It is Deuteronomic thinking, Deuteronomic theology. What are the three books that are quoted most by the Dead Sea Scrolls? Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and Psalms. What are the three books that are most quoted by the New Testament? Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and Psalms. What are the three books most quoted by the rabbis as they form rabbinic Judaism? Deuteronomy, yeah, you get the idea. Deuteronomy, there are more copies of Deuteronomy found at, 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 at Qumran than almost anything else that was there. You know. Now, this Deuteronomic thinking, you remember at the core, it was basically this. Uh, if you obey the Lord your God, things go well. And if you don't, things don't go so well. So if you're suffering, there's a reason. You obviously sinned. There's going to be some books that attack this thinking. Remember Job? Job's innocent, yet he suffers. Job is an attack on Deuteronomic thinking. Another attack is a book called Ecclesiastes. All is vanity and chasing of the wind. Nothing makes any sense. There is no cause or effect. Life is just random. Okay. So these are attacks of this. But on this stage is going to emerge this new type of thinking. Now, Deuteronomic theology tries to do two things and does it pretty well. This parts of this will be rejected later, but not for centuries. First of all, it tries to explain why tragedy has befallen us here. Or in the language of this time, why did God allow? If you believe God's in control, and if horrible things have happened to us, why did God allow? God made some promises. God promised that a king of David would be on the throne forever, right? God promised the temple would always be there. God promised us the promised land. God promised that God would be our God, and we would be God's people. What happened to those promises? So there, there's, a, there's a real struggle here. The second is, what's the way forward? Given that this thing has happened, as the people of God, where do we go from here? What's the next step that we need to do? First is explained in terms of punishment of sin. Uh, this is uh, clearly expressed not only in Jeremiah, but also in other places. But let's look at Jeremiah, Jeremiah 5. When your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? I'm thinking there are people in Babylon thinking this. And I'm thinking there's people sitting in the ruins of Jerusalem thinking this. And there's some people who fled to Egypt who are thinking this. And there's people who probably scattered all over the place thinking this. This, this is the question. If you believe it, it's like the problem of evil today. If you believe it, God's all powerful. And you believe God is good then why does evil exist? Except this is extremely personal. You shall say to them, this is God speaking to Jeremiah to the people of Israel, okay? Why God? This is the answer. 
As you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve strangers in the land that is not yours. Deuteronomic thinking. Why are they where they are? They're punished because they've sinned. Here's what you need to know about Deuteronomic theology, is, and it's, we're going to compare it to what was before. Deuteronomic theology is conditional. It always says, if, then. If not, then. That's the basic structure of it. God's support for Israel is not unconditional. God's support for Israel is conditional on Israel's obedience to God. And that's a belief that's still out there today. So there's a big if in those blessings. Deuteronomy 30. If, there it is, you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I'm commanding you today, by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, observing his commandments, his decrees, and his ordinances. So if, now what do we have next? Then you shall live and become numerous. And the Lord your God will bless you and the land of your bless, uh, in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not hear and are led astray and bow down to other gods, what would be next? Okay, then you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land, but you're going to find yourself either in Babylon by a river or sitting on a pile of rocks near Jerusalem. Now, that is not the only theology in the Bible or the Old Testament. But this is going to emerge as the predominant understanding of what happened. Because not only does this give you, and this does give you a reason, doesn't it? It explains it. Does it give you a way forward? It does. If you're obedient, what happens? We were not obedient. We were punished. So if now we become obedient, what will happen? Let the good times roll. <laughs> so what do we see after the exile? What moves to center stage? Torah. Obedience to God's law. And post-exilic Judaism is centered, focused like a laser beam, obedience to every minuscule crossing of a T, dotting of an I, minutia of the law. Why? Because it's important. Because if we can understand the law, if we can understand God's will, if we can do that, things will go well for us. Now, a few more centuries go by and that's not working so well for them. But you can understand where it comes in here. Prior to the destruction, the dominant theology of Israel was extremely different. It is a, a form of theology known as Zion theology. Any of you ever heard of that? Yeah, I don't think we even studied that when I was in seminary. Zion theology, now remember what Zion is? The mountain, the temple, Jerusalem. Zion theology puts at the center not the law, but the hill, the temple, and Jerusalem. And by the way, the other thing that was up on the hill was the king and the king's palace, which they're excavating today in, in Judea. God had made certain promises, and as a result, Israel was blessed by God. And these promises, by the way, are unconditional. You do not have to do anything. You can be evil and still get blessed. 
Now, a lot of people like that, okay. Second uh, Samuel 5, uh, 7, 15, 16 is the core, and then we're going to see, see it pull out from there. This is God's promise to David from Nathan. I will not take my steadfast love from David as I took it from Saul. Remember Saul? God blessed, God took it away. So here's the new, the new promise. I'm not going to treat David like I treated Saul, whom I put away. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure, there it is, forever before me. Your throne shall be established, here it is again, forever. By the way, in that passage, forever is four times. Okay. It was believed that this pledge applied not only to David, but his descendants. So, and the books that you really find this thinking in spades is in the Chronicles. Chronicles is very, very pro-David. Remember David and Bathsheba? You're going to find that story in Kings. Are you going to find that story in Chronicles? No, because we're going to whitewash David in Chronicles. The Lord would not destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. So not only is David secure, David's ancestors secure. And by the way, that would include Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, and all these that we've been dealing with. He had promised to give a lamp to him and to his descendants. Here it is, forever. Now, you think some people might want to grab hold of this and run with it? Okay. So if the promise is to God, uh, made to David, and to David's household, and then gradually we begin to see language of this invincibility uh, would include Jerusalem, it's going to include the temple, and the prophet Jeremiah is one of the prophets that, that railed against this. He just thought this was incredibly stupid. Jeremiah 7.4, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple. You, got, you hear that? There's that famous scene between the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Hananiah, that, you know, the, the iron yoke and all that kind of thing. Deuteronomic theology, there is no invincibility. The king, the nation, Jerusalem, and the temple are not immune if they don't follow God's commandments and God's will. There is a price to pay. Not a real popular theology prior to the exile, but after the exile, it got a lot of traction. Deuteronomic theology is only one aspect of the changes that were to sweep over Israel during the exile. Uh, over the coming weeks, we're going to be talking about a lot of these. Um, th the things that we'll talk about are things that begin in the exile, but then blossom and get traction in the Persian period, flowering in the Greek period and on down. But before we move on, we need to examine one of the thorniest issues that will come out of the period of the exile. Uh, this is an issue that, that, that in the last 15, 20 years, tremendous scholarship. It's one of those places where our understanding of things have turned upside down, um, fundamentally changed. The story of the return from the exile, which we find in Ezra and Nehemiah, which we'll look at, it turns out is told from the perspective of almost nobody, but a very tea, tiny minority people. The majority story does not get told. It's the, it's the minority one that gets told. Uh, those who go into Babylon and then later return. You remember, was it last week you talked about how many people was that? Do you remember? Not many. According to the biblical resources and the archaeology indicate the group is very tiny. Uh, 
if you go maximalist, maybe as many as 3% of the people went into exile. If you take Jeremiah's numbers, which are much smaller, and he's an eyewitness, and you take the, the, the higher end of what archaeologists think the people who lived there, it is way under 1% were taken. So out of every 100 people, only one gets carted away. Where are the other 99? If they're still alive. Yeah, they're still back home. Uh, they remain in the land of Judah. What's interesting is this group is ignored. You know, remember the one percenters in New York? <laughs> the 99 are not represented. Their story is not told. Silence. As a matter of fact, the 99 are systematically shoved to the side so that we can tell the one percent story. The majority of the exiles who went into ex exile, the one percent, the three percent, we know from Josephus and other sources you know when, they, when the, the Cyrus I says, you can go home, most of them said, no thank you. <laughs> they liked it in Babylon. They had spent 50, 70, 150 years there. They had land, they had property, they had relations. Would you want to go back to the hole in the wall <coughs> that was in ruins and have to rebuild it when you had everything you needed in Babylon? Why is it that in the first century A.D., the time of Jesus, there are four times more Jews in Babylon than there are in Palestine. And there are four times more Jews in Egypt than in Palestine. Well, where were the New York cities of the ancient world? Egypt and Babylon. And they had it good. Very few go into exile. Even fewer will come back. But that's the group we're going to hear everything about. Many chose them behind. We then get some really outstanding language. This is what we're going to get into next week. Uh, we get this language that's called, that the, you get the idea that the land of Judah was empty. They carried, every, you know junior high kids, when they say everybody? Yeah. If my best friend in the whole world is, 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 is here, everybody's here. If my bestest friend in the whole world is not here, nobody's here. You know, that kind of thing. Y you get that kind of feeling. The land of Judah was empty. Well, it wasn't empty. It was full of people. But the people that counted weren't there. No one's left. And we get what's now been, and this is the new literature. It's, a, it's called the myth of the empty land. There's a myth. And the myth is the land was empty. And there's scripture that argues for that. And there's other scripture that argues clearly against it. That everyone's taken. And, that, and, and by the way, if there was anybody left in the land, which surely there is, because when Ezra and Nehemiah come back, they fight with them. So who are these people? Well, they couldn't be Jews. What are they? Foreigners. Yeah. So you're going to put away your foreign wives and your foreign children. Remember that language? These are not foreigners. These are your Jewish brothers and sisters who didn't go into exile, did not come back. When the exiles return, they will come into fundamental conflict with the people known as the Hamarits, the people of the land, which we'll spend time next week looking at. The conflict is going to have far-reaching consequences. Uh, the whole Samaritan issue in the New Testament, the whole issue of Gentiles in the New Testament that Paul deals with, all root right back into this story. Right down to, to Jesus, Paul, and the rise of the church. Behind this, there's some deeply disturbing questions. Why do the biblical writers, at least of Ezra and Nehemiah, but also Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, narrate the story as if 
nobody else existed. What's that about? Where did that come from? You know, um, and that the future lay only with the people coming back from Babylon. So that when the people come back from Babylon and all the people who are already there say, oh, you're going to rebuild the temple. Fantastic. Let us join you. Let's build it together. We'll help you. We'll finance it with you. Do you remember what the, the, the Gola, the exiles, say to them? No. You're not allowed to help. Go away. What's that about? Why were those left behind in Palestine airbrushed out of the narrative and then systematically rejected and marginalized? Before we turn to the restoration that we're going to be looking at, we need to address these questions. So, to do this, we turn next week to this one issue because it's that important for everything that follows. And this is some of the most recent cutting-edge scholarship that's out there. It's, it's wonderful stuff. There's a lot being done with it right now. So ne next week, we're going to about the two faces of the exile. The exiles, the Gola, the people of the land, the Hamadites, and the myth of the empty land. Meanwhile...